1: Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. So friends, fans, bandmates, and family are mourning Chester Bennington of Linkin Park right now. He committed suicide on July 20th, and again, as with Chris Cornell, people are looking for answers that uh, we're probably never going to find. But I think we got a real sense of how much he meant to his fans, his lyrics specifically, and what a big part he played in many millennials' formative uh, musical experiences. And we have in the studio today uh, Brittany Spanos and Corey Groh. Brittany is a longtime Linkin Park fan, apparently, or so I hear. And Corey is currently reporting a story for the next issue of Rolling Stone that will look into Chester's last days. And we're going to, in a little bit, play an interview with Don Gilmore, who produced Linkin Park's first two albums, and then also an interview with Machine Gun Kelly, the singer-rapper who was going to be opening up for Lincoln Park on their huge tour that is now, of course, never happening. So Brittany, tell me about becoming a Lincoln Park fan as a kid, because I will say that one of the things that some music writers have seen in the last couple of weeks is this huge disconnect between a sort of older generation of critics who really looked down on Lincoln Park. They were, it's hard to emphasize how deeply uncool they were. Even at the height, of, or especially at the height of their success, versus people who were kids at the time who they were uh, for whom they were a very important band. So tell me about your experience with them.
0: Yeah, I mean, Lincoln Park definitely—they blew up sort of as the Lou Pearlman boy band era and Disneyfied like pop era was kind of kind of dying down a little bit, um, and those pop stars were moving away. And so at the time when I got into Lincoln Park, I was around like nine or ten the first time I listened to Linkin Park. Uh-huh. And they were just, I mean, so different. And they were all over the radio. I mean, I, looking at the numbers now, how big they were at that time, they were outselling a lot of those boy bands and pop acts that I grew up listening to and really loved at that moment. And they were just a new type of outlet as, you know, you're going through puberty and you're like super angsty and you're listening to Linkin Park. And that was just like really fun to listen to. And everyone I... I new in junior high was super into them and they were just a for us it was a very universal appeal there was no you know divisiveness to listening to lincoln park when i was in junior high as opposed to like boy bands that were more divisive or britney spears but lincoln park everyone loved in the end and they loved numb and collision course is really popular i know that was super divisive for a lot of critics but that was really popular to a lot of kids my age, Um, but yeah.
1: That's the Jay-Z album.
0: The Jay-Z album, yeah.
1: Yeah, so interestingly, the the last time that I heard anything from that album was when I was riding in a car with Machine Gun Kelly uh, when I was reporting my feature on him. And, and that's just part of his daily kind of intake of music, which mm-hmm. is really interesting. And I, I think also if you listen to the 21 Pilots, I, I think you really hear a lot of Linkin Park. It's It'll be interesting to see the continued reevaluation of them. How, how do you hear them now as an adult? Especially, Do you, is it really just Hybrid Theory and Meteora that were the essential albums? Or do you see them as, as a band that continued to important to their fans with new music following that
0: for me personally i was a huge fan of like hybrid theory meteora Minutes to midnight and then i kind of fell off after that and i've returned to a lot of those albums like a thousand suns which was i really enjoyed listening to over the weekend that i hadn't really spent that much time with when it came out around 2010 but they definitely had a continued influence and i you can even see this past year they had a huge hit with heavy Featuring Kiara, the fact that that song grew as big as it did. Mike and Chester kind of moved on and did different things, and they worked with a lot of different artists, but their influence still remained. And I mean, it's pretty incredible that a band that in 2000 was selling, you know, like millions and millions of records was able to have a Billboard Hot 100 hit in 2017.
1: Hybrid Theory is really like their appetite for destruction, in the mm-hmm. sense that it was. They didn't really need to make any more music after that in the sense that they made that statement and then a lot of things afterwards were were either an elaboration on that statement or an attempt to escape that. In fact, uh, I think Chester was complaining a little bit before his death about fans who wouldn't let go of that album, Mm -hmm. which is always the problem when you have a very career-defining album. But let's get into Chester himself. Uh, What do you think he meant to fans, Bernie? I
0: think he was... really great outlet for a lot of fans especially for young fans i mean he the music was just so raw and so visceral and for me i had never really heard anything like that i mean the way that he screamed watching his performances i was really obsessed with watching i had never seen lincoln park live but i was obsessed with their live in texas concert film and just like watching the way he performed he had just like you'd just see his veins popping out as he was like singing all these songs and it was just just like pure catharsis to listen to that And I mean especially at that moment with the way that rap was becoming more fused with with rock and with pop and all of that I think Linkin Park really found the sweet spot of what that can mean and what that was able to do
1: If you had to pick one song to kind of showcase his vocals, what would that be? I
0: I forever think that in the end is Just you really get that vulnerability when he does the breakdown I think it's like the best way of the way him and Mike Shinoda played off each other and You get that visceral anger and you get just like really beautiful singing voice
1: so when i talked to don gilmore which we'll hear in a bit i pointed out that you know, if you listen to the course of that song i mean that is a depressed person that is a depressed mindset mm-hmm. and don said that that wasn't really on his mind don again being the producer of that album he wasn't really aware of that and he he also said that mike shinoda the the, the rapper and and much more everyone played different roles in lincoln park mm-hmm. mike shinoda co-wrote a lot of the lyrics even the parts that Chester sang yeah so sometimes lyrics that people are attributing to Chester's mindset might not even have come from them for which sure it's really interesting Corey has your perspective on Chester changed in the kind of week of reporting because I, I know it can change rapidly once you get deep into in, into reporting like this so so what what's right. changed for you about the way you see him
2: I always got the impression of Chester and I interviewed him once maybe nine years ago uh, that he was a very earnest and open-type person. He never really hid himself. He never had a problem talking about the abuse he suffered as a child. He never had a problem talking about his drug uh, dalliances, you know, which he'd given up kind of by the time that Lincoln Park formed, but then he kind of fell back into them and relapsed. He was always very open and that's something that I found while reporting the story talking to people that he was like that off stage too. And you know sometimes and I'm sure you know this Brian when we're interviewing people you you get the sense that you're getting the version of the person that they want you to see. And with Chester I get the sense that he was that way kind of on and off like he wasn't he, he didn't vary himself too much mm. between the media Chester and the the friend Chester. Um you know I was talking to one of his friends that he'd known since uh since he was fifteen yesterday, and he was saying the same thing. He's saying that Chester didn't really change a whole lot. He, if anything, he just became a little more confident when when Lincoln Park got successful, and they be remained friends throughout that. They were in a grunge band together called Gray Days, and uh, he was a very like consistent person. And I th- found that to be very interesting. He, he was a very upbeat person. He was a very um, positive person to most people, even up until his last few days when he was talking with people. It uh, was always positive. Interactions and talking about the future and making plans, so it just you know adds a little bit more of the question mark to the things. You know, I think the fact that he was so open about the darkness um, gives you some insight as to you know there is this other side to him. He didn't project it all the time. He didn't present it all the time. And like like Brittany was saying, like you can hear it in the music, but. Maybe that was, you know, and that's something he told me once, too, when I was going back through my interview with him, is he, you know, if he didn't have this place on stage, he would be totally going dark, is what he felt. And it was a catharsis to him. So it's interesting. It just leads to so much speculation that I don't necessarily feel comfortable going into, but just like, what happened? You know, it just, that's kind of what everybody's been saying. What happened?
1: His sort of origin story with Linkin Park has a real fairy tale aspect to it. He was like slugging away in Phoenix, Arizona. At- various obscure bands, had almost quit a couple times, and then he literally got a phone call and, and his wife had been saying, don't quit. Someday you're going to get a phone call from LA. And then that phone call literally happened. On his uh,
2: birthday. Yeah. A, and, during a surprise party.
1: <laughs> it li- literally happened. That there was a band called Zero with an X, mm-hmm. <laughs> which, was, which would then be Hybrid Theory and then be Linkin Park actually the a and r guy had jeff blue had heard like his demo and and through his lawyer not very like punk rock but you know that that's that's not the kind of band they were and this fully formed band with a rapper just needed the singer to pop in
2: well their singer had quit their singer had left the band and so chester came in and they, they needed someone to replace him and sing these songs that were on this demo And what Jeff Blue sent them was two versions of the demo, one that had the versions with the original singer, and one that uh, was completely instrumental, and they said, show us what you got. You know, like, this is your chance, do it. And he ended up FedExing it right back to them, I think, a couple days later.
1: I mean, weirdly, it may seem, again, like, kind of corporate or whatever, but, like, honestly, that's more or less how Eddie Vedder got his gig in Pearl Jam. Mm -hmm. You know, they had demos, except there wasn't, like, another dude who had sang the songs first, but Ed recorded vocals over instrumental versions of of like what became Songs on 10 and he he had the other people did that too he just had the best version so this is a thing that happens Um, And then he he was thrown into this like existing band who were all best friends and he was just He had a whole life and a wife back in Phoenix and was struggling in LA to just kind of like exist and kids and yeah And it's kind of a great story And and, and this is all you know in in David Frick's really excellent cover story um, from early on and another scene that stands out is There's a part where Chester's kind of celebrating what was then his newfound sobriety And he's like on the next album I don't see what I'm gonna have to bitch about because I'm so happy right now, which is Again, one of those moments that's super sad now. Um, but, Corey, what else, what have you learned in your reporting that, that sheds any light on this or, or, like, gets at Chester's state of mind? If anything, it's just more
2: question marks than anything. You know, like, his friends all seem to say that he seemed sober, like, like, when he was touring, like, he hadn't been relapsing. Um, he was in a good place. Um, Robert DeLeo from, from Stone Temple Pilots, who I was talking to, who would, had just played with him in April through with the, the cover band Kings of Chaos, was saying that they were making plans to grow old. They were joking about what brand of adult diapers they were going to wear when they got old. Matt Sorum, who was uh, the drummer from Guns N' Roses, who also runs uh, this Kings of Chaos band that I was talking about, was texting him the day before uh, Chester killed himself. And was they were talking about, let's do these, these shows coming up. They were making plans for shows he seemed upbeat um you know again i was saying his friend from high school who uh they they were going to be doing a reunion concert of gray days the grunge band we were talking about from phoenix they were going to be doing it in i think tempe like they were going to be playing performing in arizona in september and they are reissuing their second album and they've been working on it they had producer sylvia massey working on this uh who's you know best known for tool and um chester was approving mixes and saying this sounds great i'm so excited i can't wait to play and then, everybody got the, the news. They're, they got texts. They got phone calls. Some people didn't want to believe it was true. You know, Matt Storm was telling me that he thought I thought it was fake news.
1: So, One of the things we, at least I only learned in the last few months, was that Chester and Chris Cornell had been very close. I had no idea until, frankly, Chris's death. But that puts this into some strange context. And, I mean, Chester sang at Chris's funeral. I believe he, he sang Hallelujah. Yeah. So it's it's messed up man i don't know what to say what do you make of that i think i think that it's i I don't want to speculate that
2: he uh had any like he he made this decision based on what happened with chris cornell i think that that's wrong to do that i think that he was close i I know that he was very depressed about it people that i've spoken to have said that he was very down about it matt was trying to say like look if you're feeling bad about anything please call me let's talk and chester just you know he, he didn't um And uh, he was very upset about it. Like, he he was very close. Like, I believe, and, you know, I've seen this online. Again, I'm I'm still fully fact-checking and researching this. But supposedly Chester was godfather to one of Chris's children. They were very, very close.
1: Mm. Brittany, what have you taken away from this sort of fan reaction to Chester's death?
0: I think that, I mean, obviously a lot of people were really blindsided. And because he was so open with a lot of the things he had been through. And for a lot of fans, that was a really great... Way to kind of get through their own similar issues with mental illness, with trauma from abuse. I mean, having a figure like that sing so, like, sing and speak so openly about these things really made a safe space for a lot of Linkin Park fans and a lot of people who, you know, believed in what he was saying and everything he was doing. And so I think this was just a, a gut punch for a lot of people. And I mean, he was definitely someone that. You know he wasn't too public figurey also so a lot of his life to me like I never really read that much about his life and right about his past and read interviews in passing so I mean I like when I read the news it was extremely shocking for um you know I only knew bits and pieces of his life and didn't really know a lot of his struggle with addiction and I had read about the abuse a long time ago and didn't really know how much it had factored in but I think a lot of people were just very, very blindsided.
1: I think now, especially when we're specifically hybrid theory and to I would say a slightly lesser extent, Meteora, Their pop hooks were just on point. Mm-hmm. They were a rock band of sorts who who just did not shy away from enormous pop hooks that could stand up to as you mentioned the, the sort of Swedish pen pop hooks of the era mm-hmm. which is really interesting and, and a reminder again of maybe what things with guitar in it have tended to shy away from and one reason why they haven't been as big is just like you gotta have those hooks and I think because of a raucous tendency at the time I think those very hooks were part of what made people scorn them but now you look back and be like man there's some real craft going on there Yeah. and I learned from Don Gilmore that Again, Shinoda actually would sometimes wrote the melodies, too, uh, and and Don talks about that, which is really Mm -hmm. interesting. So it was a real partnership, and I'm sure Mike Shinoda is completely devastated. It's hard to think about. Yeah. Corey Groh and Brittany Spanos, thanks for being here.
0: Thank you. Thanks.
1: And now I'm about to play an interview with Don Gilmore, who produced Linkin Park's first two albums, Hybrid Theory and Meteora. And at the beginning of this interview, I asked Don about how Linkin Park's music first came to him. Let's hear from Don. So I believe that you got a demo through your manager, and that was your first kind of introduction to Linkin Park, who may or may not have still been called Hybrid Theory at that point. I'm not sure.
3: Yeah, they were. They were called Hybrid Theory. Um, yeah, the name change came like after the record was done. Um, but I got the demo from my manager, Bennett Kaufman. And, you know, at the time I had had a lot of success and I, my, my career was really on the rise. i had done, uh, I, I was just finishing Eve Six's second record. Um, and then I did Good Charlotte's record right after Hybrid Theory, but I, I had success with Lit and, um, I was kind of doing, this sort of you know pop alternative punk kind of thing, and my manager said, "Look, this is this is a little different. You know, you might want to take a look at this. This might be a good thing for you." So I liked it. I I thought it was it was okay. You know, it was good, and I I thought it was interesting. I liked the electronic part of it. Um, it didn't it didn't you know blow me over, and. And they really you know a lot of labels sort of passed on them, they didn't really it wasn't like you know, you know this is the greatest thing, let's sign it you know it was at the time when the rap rock thing was kind of happening, so you know they kind of rode that wave a little bit, maybe they you know they were they were signing those types of bands, and they kind of kind of got in on that, I think, but
1: you weren't necessarily thrilled by what you heard but at the same time intrigued enough that you wanted to move forward obviously
3: we had a meeting i I thought in the end the in the end was pretty complete that song was pretty intact and it was very obvious you know this is this is a really good song you know i'm not really sure how it kind of fits you know in this kind of k-rock rap rock thing that was going on but i I thought it was an excellent song i went and saw them they invited me to a rehearsal and uh uh, I heard Chester sing, and I was just like, "Wow, this guy—this—is this, 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 this the same guy on the demo? Because he was singing so passionately and aggressively that it was like, you know, this is this is really good. Okay, I, I, if this—if we marry this with the with the demo, and we maybe get a few more good songs, then we got something great.
1: Interesting. And then you kind of made your pitch to them, right? Because they were choosing a producer.
3: Yeah, you know, at, at that point it was like, you know, you know, I, I called my manager and I said, yeah, let, let's really try to get this. And, and he, you know, you do the back and forth. Don loved it. You know, we do all that kind of stuff. You know, I, I maybe had another meeting with them and they chose me. It was an off we were.
1: What did you make of Chester personally? He was, he was just really a kid at that point.
3: He was the kind of guy where you, you'd walk into a meeting or walk into the rehearsal room and he had a big smile on his face. and He was just kind of up for stuff. You know, he was, he was kind of a, you know, energetic, fun guy. And uh, working in the studio every day with him, he was he was wonderful. And, you know, he um, he had some kind of issues going because he was new to the band. You know, he's from another state. He had a, his family in the other state. He's trying to do a great job with, with the, the record and and integrate with the band and, you know, they were, they were really good to him and nice to him and they all got along and stuff. But I think he was a little frustrated just cause he had this other life and he was trying to like, you know, be in LA, focus hard, you know, and try to, also be a good husband and, and deal with his other life, you know, while he was figuring out how he was going to, you know, live in LA or, you know, because at that time they had no money. They had, they were just starting, you know, it's not like you get a record deal and you're successful. You have to make an incredible record and then it's still a bit of a struggle to, to get there. But, but uh, yeah, he, you know, he had a lot on, a lot on his shoulders, I think.
1: How privy were you to his sort of lyric writing process? Because I think in case anyone wasn't clear on it, in the wake of his death, it it became all too clear how much fans were relating to the things he talked about in his lyrics and how much what he expressed meant to them. So what was your knowledge of where that was coming from at the time and how he wrote them and what he was trying to express all of that?
3: You know, Mike, you know, Shinoda, works, worked on the lyrics is much or more. He's, he's really a songwriter big time. Um, and in the studio, you know, like I said, in the end was, was pretty complete. Crawling was, was pretty complete. Um, one step closer was written in the studio. Um, the other songs were kind of all rewritten in the studio. And, you know, for me as a producer, you know, I see a weak point in a song or something that needs to be better. And, uh, you know, I say, Hey, look, can you guys rewrite this part or let's scratch everything and just rewrite this, just give it a try. And, and there's, there's always pushback with that. And in that first record, you know, it was, you know, it was tough a little bit because for a producer, it's easier to do this with new bands, you know, uh, an established band will be just like, Get out of here! You're fired. You know, if you if you do, do that sort of thing, right? But, and
1: that that might be one reason why established bands sometimes their albums get worse as time goes on. Honestly,
3: that's probably right. But you know, with these guys, I'd say, look, why don't we? Redo this, and they'd be like, "Well, you know, all our, you know, everybody, our fans love this." I'm like, well, "We've got like four fans. You don't have any fans, you know? We're we're trying to break big." And so they started dabbling, and and then all of a sudden, wow, okay, this is really good. Can you make it just a little bit better? Can you do this or this or this? And a lot of times at that point, working with artists, they've kind of—it's hard for them to go to that third place and and fourth place and go back and do the next rewrite. They'll just give up because it's too hard. They're too used to the original. But these guys would start doing that, and all of a sudden, everything was getting so good and so good, and, and they were delivering, and they were bringing in all this stuff. I say, go out and rewrite this. They come back in the studio, and they're going to be like, this is fucking amazing. So it, it worked with them. The, the kind of the coach-editor thing really worked with them.
1: At the same time, Chester said in later interviews – that he did find it a little frustrating, like you were drive, as much as you were driving him to make it better, it sounded like at that point you might have been driving him a little nuts. What do you remember about his his pushback? which you kind of mention?
3: yeah, of course, <laughs> you know people don't want to be at midnight rewriting lyrics when they've've been working on it all day you know and and you know, but like i said i mean they were they were delivering so it's like. You know, I was just like, like, this is just too fun, you know, I'm I'm just, I'm going to get, this is going to be a great record. So, you know, also there would be like, they'd look, Mike and Chester would look at each other and just laugh and go, God, this guy's nuts. And they'd just walk out of the room and and like, you know, but then they'd come out back in with something great. So it was working, you know, And, and so I just kind of kept going and, you know, the rest is history.
1: Who were Chester's sort of vocal heroes in your recollection?
3: That's tough, you know. I mean, he was the kind of guy, and you know, after I, after I finished those records and they blew up, you know, I'd go work with other artists. You know, everybody, you know, he, Chester was sort of like the gold standard. You know, I mean, all all these singers would would ask me questions. You know, what was he like? And they'd say, we met him once; he was really cool. And I'm like, yeah, he's he's he is he he really cool. But they were, they were very curious about his process, how he sang. Did he do vocal warm-ups? You know, what kind of vocal exercises? And Chester would laugh at people that did vocal exercises. Hmm. He, he would just go in there and sing. I mean, he just had it. And he was always singing. I, I would tell other singers, I go, you know, one thing he did do that was a little different, he was kind of singing all the time. Hmm. You know, we'd go have lunch or something, and he'd be singing some funny thing. or And, and, and he, he the voice was just like his thing. That's what he was. Tell me
1: about the... Split between Mike and Chester. How did they work out their sort of collaboration and and how the singing worked with the rapping and just the the general, which so defined the sound of the band.
3: They they were really good working together on that first record. I, I, they um, it was very uh, it was a a real collaboration, and you know the second record was maybe a little more Mike. Um, writing and stuff, but Chester's still collaborating a lot. But that's just kind of my feeling on it, that, that Chester and Mike worked great together. And, and they, it was like the three of us in the studio, really, after the tracks were all laid and stuff. And it was awesome. It was, it was so good, so satisfying.
1: What do you remember about this song in the end and in, in recording that one?
3: Um, you know, it, like I said, that was pretty much together. It wasn't like, you know, we have to really tweak this and work it and stuff. It, they, they brought that in pretty much as is there might be, it might've been a couple little things, but it was, that was one of those cases where, okay, we this is a great song. Let's just, um, let's just make it sound amazing. Honestly, it wasn't really my favorite song on the record. I mean, and when we finished, you know, everybody's like, this is going to be the big hit and everything. And I was like, hmm, okay, fine. You know, I, I kind of see it, you know, you know, I see crawling and one step closer is more of a hit. But that was just my thing. And I'm glad it did work out really good.
1: When you have a chorus and you, you hear it and, you know, I tried so hard and got so far, but in the end, it doesn't even matter. That's you know, I don't know if if Mike or Chester wrote those lyrics, but that is a, a depressed person talking. Yeah. Did any of that strike you at the time? Because there is that cast, as we were kind of saying to a, to a number of the
3: lyrics. No, you you know, I mean, you know, one thing that that you know, you know, when we got in the studio, we're we're trying to, I'm trying to kind of figure out, okay, what is this thing? You know, we have you know, this rapping thing that's, that's a little not your standard kind of rapping. It's more poetic, and, and and you know, we have this amazing singer, and we have, like, this great sound and this electronic thing and this rocking. I, and I, I'm just try, trying to kind of figure it out and, like, like you know, what – and one, you know, and Mike and I would talk, and I'd be like, you know, I think he kind of – you know, I think even the band kind of wanted something – I've said this before, but something even kind of vocally more like Incubus for right. Chester, you know, something a little, just a little, a little tamer, you know, and, and 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 you know when he sang and we got that on tape, it was just like, dude, this is so fucking good, this is undeniable. So they saw that, but but one thing that 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 um, Mike and I uh, a common ground was Nine Inch Nails. It was like, okay, this is an artist, this is a a sound that, that is is very unique. It was different when it came out, and it broke, and it did well. So that was sort of like, okay, this is sort of like, you know, a path, sort of, you know, a, sonically, that we could go down.
1: Crawling was one that was very close to Chester's heart. What do you remember about that alarm?
3: Again, so long ago, but, you know, it was... I, I knew it was amazing, you know, I mean, I, I, mean I, I knew it was a great song and it was just so unique and, and yeah, I, I loved it, I, I, th- I thought that was going to be the, the giant single and it, it was, it was pretty, pretty darn big.
1: Did you have any personal conversations with Chester at those times? I mean, it, again, this is stuff, we later learned all these things about him, substance abuse, the, he, he experienced uh, uh, physical abuse as a child, uh, he, had a, he had a rough time. How much of that stuff, if any, did he talk about with you?
3: I mean, honestly, he 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 kind of talked about it with everybody, and that's one. That's another thing about this whole thing that, that's odd is because he, you know, he shared like his problems and stuff, and the you know the abuse thing that was that was pretty heavy, you know. But but all of his other kind of stuff was just normal stuff, you know. Like you know, he's trying to figure out how to you know get his wife out here, and he's frustrated because she's saying you know you got to come home this weekend and, 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 you know, and, and, you know, the guy's sleeping on people's couches and he doesn't, you know, it's it just normal kind of stuff that we all go through. Um, but obviously the abuse thing was, was, was like, it was just something I was just like, Oh wow. Okay. And it was, I didn't really talk to him about too much,
1: mm. but it was something he just kind of casually brought up, I guess.
3: He did, yeah, and, and, and again, it, 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 I, don't, I don't know if it was necessarily just me and him in the room. It, it might have been like, you know, the whole band or a few of the guys that were eating lunch one day or something like that.
1: So in a sense, you were surprised because this was someone who was, wasn't shy about sort of reaching out to people and telling them what was going on with it. He, he wasn't someone who kept everything bottled up, I guess is what you're saying.
3: That's exactly right, yeah. he would He would freely, you know, discuss stuff. He was an open book.
1: Did you have a sense, especially during that first album, that, oh, this guy is going to be a star, this is going to be the, you know, other singers are going to ask me about him? Was there any of that evident to you as you were recording?
3: Yeah. You know, there was a little pushback on, like, the intensity of him singing, you know, from the band, and me saying, okay, listen to this. You know, people are going to freak out when they hear this. They're gonna People are going to love this, you know, and... and there was a little bit of me selling the band on him doing that he he wanted to do it, but he you know he was new in the band, you know he was trying to do a great job, you know they were finding their sound, so it was a little contentious you know in in that way when we were making the record but but um we never specifically again you know said, "Oh, we want to sound like this or that." We just kind of did what felt right
1: was your impression that they were taken aback by the intensity of the singing because you said they wanted someone more in the vein of Incubus. They wanted sort of a, a smooth, I, I don't know if you want to say commercial, but a, sort of a smoother singer who would counteract the rapping. And they were like, oh, no, whoa, this guy's really intense. He's like a metal singer. Oh, we don't know about this. Is that kind of the thinking?
3: Yeah, I, I, I think that they did not want to be a metal band. You know, they they did not want people to think they were a metal band. So, you know, as soon as they came in and listened to some of the tracks, they were like, Looking at each other like, like uh, you know, this this feels doesn't feel right. But it was like, guys, you know, this this is so good. And I think that Chester even saying, yeah, this is this is this is what I want to do. I mean, I, they 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 fully you know got on board, and that took the music and took the vibe to a whole nother place that the band had never really been before. And that happened in the studio, and, and, you know, all to to Chester's credit. I mean, like I said earlier, I didn't know he he could do that, and he did that in the studio.
1: If there's one ingredient that kind of pushed Linkin Park into being a a super commercial, super successful act, it probably was the enormous pop hooks that Chester sang. Was he always the melody writer of those hooks, or how did it work?
3: You know, Mike Schnoda probably... 50% Fifty percent, or even a little bit more, especially after the first record. Hmm. Um, the first record, it felt like Chester was very involved in, in all that stuff, um, very involved. And and then Mike is sort of like this budding producer and songwriter. He's he's awesome, you know. So he's sort of maybe getting even more involved in all that stuff. But Chester still was very very involved.
1: It's interesting. Did Mike? Then, uh, have you heard demos where Mike, like, sang choruses and stuff? Is that out there somewhere?
3: No, no, not like that. Not like that. Um, it would be kind of like, you know, they'd be working on a melody and Mike would kind of sing it, not on a mic. Chester would kind of take over and say, hey, maybe it could go up like this. And he'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's good. That's awesome. You know, that that sort of thing.
1: So what other memories stand out from your time with Chester?
3: You know, it, it's just, he, he was just such a sweet guy, you know, and he... He just felt like he, you know, you know, I have other, you know, other people that would just met him once or something. He just felt like he, the guy was your friend, you know, he's just a, like a good dude and he, he was funny and he laughed. He loved to laugh and, and he was an instant, instant likable guy. Um, it's, it just, it blows my mind that, that, that this happened and it's, it's just, wow, it's terrible.
1: Have you had a chance to talk to anyone else who knew him and try to make any sense of this?
3: not within the band, you know, but just, you know, friends outside of the band and we haven't as a society and our culture, we haven't dealt with this sort of thing that well. I don't think we really have a handle on these aspects of of, um, mental illness and depression and uh, hopefully, you know, we'll start looking at that more serious.
1: Sometimes when this happens with someone, you then look back and say, oh, this thing that happened now seems different to me. This thing that he said now seems different to me. Is there anything like that that kind of popped into your mind?
3: Not at all. Mm. Not at all. I mean, he, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't a depressed guy. And I mean, you know, I mean, it's a different topic, but Chris Cornell, I worked with him, not that guy. I mean, it was like, it was like, wow, Chris Cornell, that he did that. What? And then Chester, it's like, this is too weird. You know, this is, you know, Chris Cornell is a family man. He, he loved his kids, and this just, just doesn't make sense.
1: Thanks so much for taking the time to uh, talk about this. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. And right now we're going to play an interview Corey Groh did with Machine Gun Kelly, the rapper who was supposed to be opening for Linkin Park on the tour they just had to cancel in the wake of Chester's death. Corey started by asking MGK what his reaction was, how he's been dealing with Chester's passing. Let's hear what he had to say.
4: You know, I was I was off and on between like wanting to continue to keep my commitment to the events that we had and wanting to cancel it and just curl up in a ball because, you know, I think like we felt defeated in so many ways, you know what I mean? Like we lost probably the biggest voice for my generation that I've ever been alive to see. Uh, you know, alive and aware of when they passed, you know, cause like as, as influential as Kurt and Tupac were and Biggie were, like, you know, I wasn't all the way, uh, cognizant of their effect at the time. But like Chester was like, we had just shared the stage together two weeks ago. It's, you know, it was a lot of like, a lot of regret in my system. And, you know, I, we were also about to tour that I think just, you know, a gen- our generation hasn't seen anything like before. So, you know, there's a lot of, like, there's a lot, there's just a lot, man. A lot going on in my head. But, you know, I kept my commitments, and I'm trying to just uh stay away from my own thoughts as much as possible and just keep keeping public. And I saw a bunch of pictures with Chester with, the, with fans, and it actually, like, after he passed pictures with him and it actually like inspired me to want to like take pictures again with people and just give them that moment because a lot of times I shy away from pictures and shit now because mm-hmm. I think I think a lot of times I feel like people are doing for the wrong reason you know just for the celebrity of it but then when I saw Chester pass I saw him with so many people and they were just smiling and all the pictures and they were so happy to have met him and you know it makes all the it makes all the the bullshit that you deal with in situations like that worth it when you have those couple people that really take those moments yeah. Cherish him forever, so that was cool. It's
5: true. Everything I've heard about Chester in the last few days is <clears throat> just how open and earnest and like, like you said, just with his fans, dedicated he was, you know. It seemed like he was totally this open person. Uh, I mean, you know,
4: I, I saw it in his, I saw it, I saw nothing in his face that reflected what happened, so. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I was just always around for the good times with Chester or
5: what. But. Well, that's the other thing. I've talked to a lot of people that he's played with over, like in recent months and stuff like that too, and they say the same thing that you know people were texting him the day before, and he was like planning shows with them, like the Kings of Chaos, that that, that group that he had. Like he he was making yeah, plans. Yeah, Tell me about the last time you saw him because he said it was just a
4: couple weeks ago. Uh, it's uh, it's funny. The last time I saw him was uh, in Poland. We were, um doing, we, we had did a couple shows together in here, um that our management had put together just because we wanted to, like, warm up for our U.S. run. And, uh, I remember they were like, come out for Bleed It Out today, tonight, and end the show with us. And I was like, oh, fuck yeah. And I, you know, I went out, did the song with them. And after I did my verse, it's so funny, I was, I looked over and, like, just, so, like, And Tim, Chester's, I'm still so starstruck by him and Mike that like, after my verse was done, I was like, oh, well, you know, I should probably just leave the, I should probably just leave the stage. You know what I mean? Like, like (laughs) it's the finale of the show. It's not, uh, you know, I'm, it's not my show. So, you know, my moment's done. Like, I should just leave. And it's so fucking crazy because I got an email from Mike after the show and the email said, yo, Chester and the boys want you to stay out for the whole finale next time. (laughs) <laughs> and just fucked up because there was no next time, so.
5: Yeah, that would have, had to have felt. Last time,
4: stuff. so, so, I le- legitimately, the last time I saw Chester, he was looking side stage and giving me the what the fuck face, like, you should have stayed out here, and that was, like, that was, that's, that's how I learned the fucking coolest shit ever, man. I just wish that, I wish that I would have had another chance to stay out there.
1: So you're listening to an interview that Rolling Stone's Corey Groh just did with Machine Gun Kelly who is supposed to be opening for Linkin Park on their now-canceled tour. In this next segment, Corey asked MGK just about what was supposed to happen on this tour that will now never happen. Let's hear what he had to say.
4: I think, like, one, we were going to be like a really, uh, you know, we were talking about how we love and what's missing in tours is like this camaraderie between, you know, the the acts on the bill and just you know we were you know gonna be doing a lot of like um, Facebook lives together and like just you know kind of you know a lot like I'm uh, very active with um, you know video vlogs and we have a very popular YouTube channel we use that through we were kind of all like playing just like skits and just like fun fun shit that I haven't seen since like you know maybe like Blink 182 days you know what I mean when they were doing those DVDs, like the Urethra Chronicles, like just fun, funny shit, cause Chester's fucking hilarious, you know what I mean? Yeah. And like we, you know, so we were dabbling with that before he even left, and, like, you know, and then yeah. me and Chester were talking about doing an epic cover at the end of, uh, at the end of the show, and you know, he was talking Metallica, I was talking, you know, we were going back and forth on, you know, what we were gonna do, and that was gonna be a surprise for the new, uh, for the new U.S. dates. So, there, I mean, it was just, I don't know, man. And, like, and plus there was, like, there's, like, the buzz around us right now because, you know, this album and the way we did Europe, it just, like, there's just, like, a lot of momentum and it just felt like it was just going to be, like, every fan out was there was just going to get the, the most worth it, you know, the, like, the most you could get out of your fucking money spent. You're going to get to see you know, like your childhood favorite band who still sounds better than fucking ever and larger than life and you get to see like Machine Gun Kelly's fucking like break out like fucking big first fucking real big venue tour, you know what I mean? And like the stage plot we had was so epic. And, you know, the bleed the way we do bleed it out is really fucking cool. So wow. I I don't know. I you're mean, just sitting here talking, I'm obviously like just living in that still and I need to not but it was, it was weird. We had a lot of big, big things playing.
5: What Metallica song did he want to do?
4: Oh, my God. I'm so fucking mad. I don't remember what fucking song he wanted to do. <laughs> um, dude, I, I I won't forget. I it was me yesterday, and we were just sitting there, like, not even arguing, but just, like, throwing out so many different random cover ideas. But he was super passionate about, like, no, it would be so cool if we did, like, this, and, like, you could do this, and... You know, there's just and like you know, we were there was there's like other people coming on the tour as well, like in different regions. So like you know, we were trying to involve like everybody in it. And I don't, I don't know, man. He was just ambitious, and he looked like he was full of like fucking new ideas. It was crazy. Like he's such a legend, he's done so much already. I couldn't believe how like giddy he was about like these new ideas.
5: How would you describe his personality? It sounds like you had a lot of a lot of time with him here and there.
4: I mean, without the, not, not not even in a corny way or anything, but just, like, sweetheart, I guess. Like, he has this really, like, soft fucking, like, talking voice. <laughs> and, you know, he doesn't, he, like, looks you in the eyes when he speaks to you. You know, it's just certain qualities that you notice in people because they are so rare. But, yeah, just very, very soft, but, like, n- knew what he wanted to say. It's really, it was really cool. Because then when he went, when he went on stage... You so goddamn loud, <laughs> right? So I, I guess that's why I point that out because when you do talk to him, he doesn't talk? He doesn't talk like you know. He he has. There's two people in that guy for sure.
5: Everybody I've talked to so far as I've been doing this is just saying that he seemed to be in a really good, you know, frame of mind the last few few weeks, last few months. That this was just a total surprise. Was that your impression from talking with him?
4: Mm-hmm. Yes. And yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, dude. I, I it, well, we thought it was fake news, man. Yeah, yeah. I saw your tweet saying we thought it was fake news. You know, I I, I there's no way. I just I was talking to Mike that morning. Mm. Wow. We were making the fuck. We were making our show tracks for the Lincoln Park set. We were, we had just shipped off all our production to Boston for the first day. Like it, it was it was no. There's no fucking way. Uh, when did There's you... No way. I ju- you know, I, I, it, it, it didn't make any sense. I was just, Mike had just sent me, like, a song that he and I did together.
5: How did you find out it was real? Sorry. Or when did you find out it was real?
4: Um, when, my, when my phone started blowing up and, like, I got one call from someone in my management who was just, like, who called but didn't say anything. And, like, when they didn't say anything, I, like, knew what it was. And I was with my kid, actually. And like a lot of times, you like shield weird moments from your kid because they're just not ready for that. Was there was no hiding that one. I like I fucking lost my shit. Yeah, was a, there was a lot that goes that goes into accepting something like that. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, fuck, man, I can't I can't imagine how like Mike feels. you know?
1: So you've been listening to Rolling Stone music. Now we'll be back. Next week at 1 p.m. on Sirius XM's Volume channel 106. In the meantime, download us as a podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to leave us a nice review on iTunes or wherever else you can. And we'll see you next week.